Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am hosting, together with David Moser today, our regular guest and who's really become a co-host. David Moser is academic director of CET, jazz musician and a man of many talents. Welcome back, David. Thanks, Jeremy. I thought it was always a nice pollution day when when you did the podcast. Today is terrible. It is. I mean, I think the last last week Kaiser said we were losing our streak. Uh, <laughs> you know, today is a pretty bad pretty day. Bad we're day. bumping up against three yeah. hundred PM two point five. Anyhow, let's stop moaning and get on to the <laughs> the, the subject in question. Uh, the New York Times recently uh, appointed a journalist with the interesting name of Mosey Secret as its sin and vice correspondent, and he is going to be dedicated to covering all manner of sins and vices uh, for the Times. And uh, it made me think of uh, a journalist I know very well in Beijing, Robert Foyle Hunwick, who has written many, many pieces that uh, would perhaps make him the most suitable person to be the sin and vice correspondent of China. Welcome to Seneca, Robert. Thanks, Jeremy. I'll try and be as sinful as possible. Yeah, we want some sin. Uh, he does write about other things, but today we're going to be talking about mostly about sin and vice. Um, so let's start with uh, a piece that you wrote uh, for uh, Vice or Motherboard or whatever it is um, called "The Great K Hole of China," which sounds uh, obscene. Uh, can you <laughs> explain what you mean by K hole? Oh uh, yeah, um, for for uh, listeners who are under fifty. Uh, Uh, a K-hole is uh, an experience that you get after taking a large amount of a drug called ketamine, in which you enter into a sort of disassociative state of uh, hallucinogenic euphoria, um, or or not, and uh, you're kind of out of it. To, to the uh, to the uh, to the witness, you're like lying on the ground, um, but you're having a great time inside your head. And um, you know the great K hole of China. Why are we talking about ketamine in China?、Mm. Okay, this was like a story that was a few years in the making. And in that,、uh, I, I first noticed it、uh, when I was traveling through South China, and I occasionally would go out at night and after dinner、like, try to go to a club.、Um, and I wasn't particularly enamored with Chinese clubs; they were, you know, of a, a very different style to what I was used to. But every so often,、um, I'd be invited. Into the kind of、um, more VIP areas by strangers, and it was there that I discovered like a wild behind-the-scenes world of、um, open drug taking and、um, prostitution. And、uh, the drug of choice, which was what surprised me the most, was was not the famously like、uh, uh, rich man's dandruff, like cocaine.、Uh, it was ketamine, which. Uh, I'd always associated with being a fairly kind of student type drug,、mm. or hippies, or hippies, psychedelic people, and and doctors, medical students especially,、uh, are huge fans. As I discovered in my research, because they consider it to be a very clean drug,、uh, it's impossible to overdose on unless a sack of it falls falls on your head.、Um, and there's no addictive properties, although that's there's some dispute about that. And、uh, essentially, no calm down. So doctors love it. But、um, it's also a, a kind of a mentally quite、uh, torturous drug, especially if you've never had it before, because it takes you onto a completely different plane. And、uh, it's kind of like it's, LSD. Yeah, it's, LSD, it's LSD, LSD. And of course, you know, I, I was new to China, and this butted up against all these notions I'd had of of people being fairly indoctrinated, and apart from drinking, you know, not being particularly free thinking in in their lifestyles. So the idea of ketamine and China didn't seem to gel, and so the question was in my mind was why, why this drug? And then a few years later, I came back to that subject. And do, have you managed to answer it? Why this drug?、Uh, I think、uh, there's a few answers in the piece.、Um, it, it, it comes down to essentially、uh, it's cheap, it's highly available because it's mostly manufactured in places like South China and and India and Southeast Asia, like huge、uh, chemical manufacturing points. It's semi-legal, at least to produce、uh, for medical purposes,、uh, it, and it is used in 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 human medicine. And of course, it can be, you know large batches can end up falling off the factory line.、Uh, it's also got a certain amount of exoticism, which makes it attractive to people who would like to show off to their friends.、Hmm. 
It's interesting because uh, it seems like uh, the last time I uh, investigated anything like this in <laughs> China, it was the, the drug was at the discos. I mean, there was a disco scene. And it was ecstasy, which they called the Yao Tou Wan, you mm. know, uh, shake head, shaky head, yes, shaky shake head, head. shake yeah. head pill. And uh, which 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 as, as I think ecstasy is a is a cousin is a cousin of LSD. In fact, right. It's in the same family, although its effects are very different. But the but the the thing about ecstasy was that it it has this bonding effect, so that the people who took it, you know, on the on the dance floor would would just you know bond and become great friends. And it also makes you very sensitive to to rhythm and music, which is perfect for a uh, for a disco and a, <laughs> a, a, a nation that is not typically sensitive <laughs> to rhythm or music. <laughs> this, yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Right, yeah. So I mean, let's briefly before we move on to the next uh, sin and vice. Hmm. Uh, Maybe I, you can answer some questions. I mean, why is China's drug use profile so so different from the West? Uh, ketamine, you've pointed out, is a drug that you know well-off people use, not students. You know, rich people in clubs. Um, from what I know, there doesn't seem to be a huge cocaine abuse problem here, uh, although ecstasy is very popular. People don't seem to be very much into marijuana, uh, but. Sp- Ice, uh, mm-hmm. uh, crystal, crystal meth, meth yeah. is the other one. So it's crystal meth, uh, uh, ketamine, um, heroin, and, and ecstasy, and, and heroin. heroin. Yeah, heroin being though a working class kind yeah. of drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, well, but but mm-hmm. not so much in but but more that's in the coastal areas more in the south, right? Because of the the distribution and the channels. I suppose, right? so, but it used to be in Beijing too. I mean, the the when there was a Uyghur Uyghurville uh, uh, on the west side of town here, you could get hash and heroin there. That was I don't know if that's still. Well, the that case. was a long time ago, Jeremy. Though that's the nineties you're talking about. It's a it's a really it's a traditionally homeless drug, isn't it? A homeless drug. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what you could, what you ha- you could say this is this an unprecedented social experiment in many ways. A country. Um, and unlike, let's say, Europe and the U.S., which developed into their interest in marijuana from the 30s, and then kind of cocaine was a, a 70s drug, ecstasy was a 90s drug, right? Um, you had a society that was completely like isolated until the 70s and the 80s, and then that all came off, and every drug was already available. Um, there, there wasn't a sort of sense of uh, things trickling in or, or being discovered. So I guess they sort of took their pick. Mm-hmm. I guess so. So, I, I mean, I'd just like to end off this section by saying to our, our friends uh, the audio, in the audience who, who work for the, the uh, Chinese police that, uh, of course, we condemn all forms of drug abuse uh, at Seneca. So unconditionally. Unconditionally. Any abuse. Yeah. Even beer. Um, well, well, let's not go too far. Except, except Qingdao. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we mainly support uh, Baijiu, actually, yes. I'd like to say. you know. Right. Um, are you, are, you, are you guys both big Baijiu drinkers? I mean, there's... I am now. I'm, now. I'm, I'm, used to, I'm used to it now. I like Baijiu, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I don't think it's something you can drink on its own. I think it needs no, to be with, with food. Yeah, mm. uh, with, with food. Yeah, right. So but yeah, no, I mean, I'd like to roundly condemn old friend and former Beijing resident Isaac Stonefish, whose recent <laughs> piece on, on Baijiu has been doing the rounds <laughs> on the internet. Right. Uh, and uh, I think it's just not true. Yeah. But it takes a long time. It does. For the uninitiated. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, maybe it took me 15 years to acquire the taste. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough on substance abuse. Uh, let's move on to something that is connected to substance abuse, something you've written about very recently and was published on Slate and a site called Roads and Kingdoms uh, and titled The Worst Party in Asia about the full moon party in Copangang, uh, the island uh, the, uh, of Thailand. Um, so why did you want to subject yourself to this horrendous experience of going to this party, Robert? I, I didn't really. I was I was stuck in Thailand for a while um, because um, of various bureaucratic uh, hassles. And I was traveling around and I, I'd been kind of going from beach to beach and just exploring the, the land. Um, I happened to be in a, a travel agent and I said, there was a sign saying the party, the full moon party is like, is tomorrow. I'd never been and I heard about it and I thought, I'll give it a shot, why not? Um, so I did and I didn't much enjoy it. Not because I don't like parties or um, I abhor the idea of people staying up till 6am getting fucked up. I don't mind that at all. I just found it to be a very dated experience that you wouldn't get even in, in, you wouldn't get in, in Europe because we've, we've done that in the 90s. 
Uh, we all sat around in fields uh, listening to bad techno <laughs> bad, music. Bad techno <laughs> music. Uh, I, I'm sure we both have. And uh, oh, sorry, it's called EDM now. Yeah, isn't it? EDM. electronica, electronic dance music. Yeah, it well. makes me think of erectile <laughs> music whenever I hear it. <laughs> it'll anyway. it'll give you that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was just rather kind of uh, a vacuous experience because the main the main sort of thing seemed to be, it was a kind of um, party where you know you fall fall asleep and you wake up and someone's drawn a uh, you know moustache all over you and pile of can of beer. Um, at your feet and taking pictures, you know, a frat boy kind of atmosphere. Uh, a wild frat boy party associated with vacuousness? That's <laughs> that's new. I mean, that's something different. It's great when you're, you know, in a frat house, I'm sure. But it does seem to me that in the last 10, 15 years, I mean, Southeast Asia has really gone downhill. I mean, it's always been a place of debauchery, but, uh, you know, Laos now is, is got a similar a similar scene where it used to be this the Vang, really quiet the country. The tubing experience. Yeah. Is that still yeah. going? Because that I, was very much like that. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that one, you see, again, it's insanely dangerous. Um, I don't want to sound like Aunt Agatha here uh, wagging, wagging his finger at, you know, kids having fun. But, you know, taking mushrooms and getting drunk while in a, in a, a very <clears throat> wild river on a tube going from bar to bar, mm. it, you know. Not this people, people die every, every, every month and it's, and it's not at all publicized you see um, one last question before we move on because in some ways this is a ridiculous topic about <laughs> bad bad kind of uh, frat boy type 16 year old parties but yeah. um, did you uh, w- what do you make of the local Thai uh, feelings about this kind of partying at Copenhagen is there any resentment or do they just see it as a business opportunity uh, of course it's, it's, it's both um, they recognize that it's their sole means to make money. Just as, you know, if you're born in, in certain provinces of Thailand, you either choose to pick mangoes or go to the city and earn your money in Sin City. Um, so it's an opportunity, but it obviously comes at a huge price for them. You know, they have to deal with, like, all the all the, all the yobos, uh, and the, all, the, all the waste. The beach is filthy. I mean, the you had photos filthy. illustrating your story. Yeah. It was absolutely disgusting. But, but it was, it, you know, given a choice, I don't think any of them would go back. I think it probably just needs to mature the party, just to become a a, a more adult party. Like I, don't know, I know that sounds yeah, but I've, I've had I've been to great parties in in England. Like I think Burning Man, maybe like five ten years ago, would have been the kind of party I'd say it was an excellent party. A very, a very that it's a party. That's like a, it's more than just a party. It's more like a an ex, you know a total sensory experience. Yeah. event. It's know. quite socially conscious, though, isn't yeah, it? You know, right. if, you, if you drop a, if you drop your can of beer on the ground, you'll have some that's, that's right. someone tutting uh, at and, you. Yeah. And, some and, hippie will. Yeah, Abigail some ju- huge muscled hippie. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Okay, enough of the juvenile parties. Let's move on to parties for mature people. Um, so, getting drunk in North Korea. Yeah. A piece you did for the Atlantic. Uh, what a great gig you have. I, I think I've met a lot of people like you, but none of them actually write about it. They just ro- roam around the Far East and do exactly what you're doing. They just don't. Uh, well, let's make it clear. Robert it. actually doesn't indulge in any of these things. He's just observing, right? Uh, a couple of beers in North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so tell us about getting drunk in North Korea. Um, well, it's pretty much all there is to do if you're North Korean. Um, it, it, North Korean, the same as Korean drinking culture. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but no, they they are, they are heavy drinkers. And there's a sort of like the cliche of like the salary man lying in the street in his suit. Um, waking up at 8 a.m., getting up, getting back on the subway and going straight back into work. So, uh, (laughs) and in North Korea, I mean, there was apparently also a a thriving kind of uh, appetite for meth, amphetamine and marijuana. It grows wild by the road. Um, So these are all sort of drugs that are escape drugs. You know, if you're hardcore abusing soju every night, it's not because you're a happy man. It's interesting that the the, the article paints this picture you know you can sort of imagine it i see sort of see, see correspondences to the the the, the to russia mm. uh, you know uh very uh, it's, although it's you know very different but i mean a, a very lousy economy a lot of uh, depression um i even read somewhere that one of the leading causes of death among adult males is is drowning in the river drunk i mean they they get drunk and fall in the river and drown that's a leading, leading, leading like cause of death um, but i mean the yeah. same the same these bleak 
these people that work all day and then they they go to the bar and just drink themselves, uh, you know, in, in right. the gutter. Or, or, on on, on state-owned grain. <laughs> and, and these are all subsidized by the government. I mean, they're, they're well aware of the fact that keeping their population drunk yeah. is good for them. This is like Brave New World. Mm. They're, they're right. them on SOMA, exactly. you know, uh, they keep them happy and, and, and numb. Yeah, Huxley's probably way, way, way ahead of, of Orwell in terms of figuring out how the worst kind of authoritarianism will work out in the future. China, I mean, it has a bit of that too. I mean, I think the only thing that hasn't had any inflation since I've been here is the, the, the price of cigarettes, uh, Argos Hall, and beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything else is, you know, costs way yeah. more than it used to. Who was it that said China is actually both Brave New World and 1984? Who said that? Probably Jeff, Jeff, Wasser, Jeff Wasserstrom. Yeah, Jeff yeah. I've always been more on the Brave New World camp, but I think he said it's both. <laughs> it's a good blend. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, there's a lot of, lots of complaints where I'm from in the UK about uh, how supermarkets you know, price alcohol below uh, market rate in order to, you know, as a loss leader. Mm-hmm. If you go into the uh, supermarkets here, you see those barrels of Baijiu, plastic barrels, uh, yes. two or three litres. Uh, <laughs> you don't hear any, anyone complaining about that, though. So let's let's go to a piece that you actually uh, wrote for Dunway, the mm. site that I control back when we were when we were still actually publishing journalism, which was about uh, it was uh, ended up being titled "Guys and Sex Dolls: Scenes mm. from the Guang, Guang, Guangzhou Sex Po." So this is a very interesting feature of of Chinese culture, and been in the news recently because of one at Xi'an when old lady got up and condemned everyone for being you know, infiltrated by Western colonialists mm. who were you know, introducing their libertine sex culture, which is pretty ridiculous given China's long history of yes. concubines and yes. pornography. Um, but the, the sexpo is a, a very particular Chinese activity, I would say. I mean, um, there, there are these uh, sex exhibitions in Shanghai and Guangzhou and Xi'an and other places um, they are given quite a lot of nationwide media coverage. I mean, you'll see photos uh, from these sex sexpos in, in state media. Um, what's going on here, Robert? They are under the auspices of sex education and family planning. So the media can give them a lot of coverage without being seen to be uh, too much tabloid. Because it's good for it's good it's good for clicks. Well, all of the sex shops in Beijing, the Chinese for them is is all of the you know of the marital aids mm. uh, or you know uh, husband uh, and wife. We always uh, serve by uh, a fifty year old in a, in a nurse's costume, right. uh, which right. is <laughs> yeah. not nearly as sexy as sounds. Why are there so many sex shops in Beijing and Shanghai? Because there's so much sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I guess why why one thing I've always said is, it's a good point. I've, I've often reflected on this point is the one thing about sex. Uh, is it's the only thing you can really have which is great, greatly pleasurable, which you don't need to pay for, yeah, or yeah. shouldn't need to pay for. Right. So commercializing it is is just an annoyance, really. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But um, again, you've got to think about all the, the the hundreds of people, thousands of people, of course, who are away from their families working, yeah. and for them. Uh, yeah. It's not only sex toys, they also sell kind of fake Viagra yeah. or real. And, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, I mean, if you go to a sex shop, it's, it's great fun. Kind of looking at all the outfits and nurse outfits yeah. and things, right? So, and I mean, it's not just stuff. lonely migrant workers buying yeah. artificial vaginas. And they had, they, had one, they had one stall that was doing S&M. Um, at the sex bar. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, you don't see... This, I mean, there are sex bows in other countries, and they're quite sexy, you know, um, but these ones are not. It, it, was, it was an article that was really uh, um, not fun to research. It was fun to write. But when I was at the Sexpo, it, it was quite an unpleasant affair. And there was one time where I actually kind of saved an old guy from getting stomped. Because with one of these chaps, you, you often see him around wielding a huge camera with like a paparazzi-style lens. And, you know, he was trying to get some shots of uh, someone who was giving out free condoms. And there's a woman uh, in a bikini, and she was throwing out free condoms. And the crowd was going nuts as if she was throwing out free vouchers to have sex with her. I mean, these are just condoms. Uh, and yet everyone was, like, falling over themselves to get them. And this guy got knocked to the ground. And he was being trampled when I, I just leant, leant over and, and helped him up to the ground. Uh, and that's to give you an idea of just how kind of unpleasant these places can be. And, uh, you know, the, you talk about the cameras because that does seem to mm. be a feature that, you know, a lot of kind of pervy blokes with big cameras. I mean, is that because it's relatively difficult to get pornography? And I mean, before pe- people howl and complain that everyone watches porn, I mean, it is more difficult here than in, in, in the US or Europe where you can buy it legally very easily. Yeah. Well, um, since the Internet, though. Since the Internet, but even on the Internet, you have to 
you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's porn is blocked, and, and I mean, if only Kaiser was here to give us some Baidu. Baidu. Well, I, I said in the article, and, and I now have to sort of retract it, that, that what you're seeing at these places isn't that different from what you thought you could see at any beach. But then again, nowadays you've got everyone wearing these face keenies. So perhaps not. Yeah, perhaps not. It's, I was always struck me that Chinese, Chinese people had a uh, very, maybe refreshingly matter-of-fact attitude in, about sex, actually. There's a, as you say, there's a lot of sex here, and, but a lot of the sex that goes on, people don't make a big deal of it. Even back in the... I wrote a, Actually... I wrote a, an article for Danway a long time ago about Viagra or, or Chinese, Viagra. Chinese Viagra. Yeah. And, Viagra. And even back in the in the mid nineties, there were there were sex education shows on Beijing TV for for couples, and they had a sort of a they were usually you know hosted by uh, an an old or middle aged and uh, sort of you know professor or nurse type woman and then a in a white coat in a white coat oh you're telling they, me on and the, <laughs> yeah, you're hard i know and, but the people would call in and they would say you know i'm 45 years old i'm a man i'm, I'm sort of like I'm, I'm not doing as well in bed as i used to and the woman would say things like just relax you're 45 years old you've had your time you don't need any more you don't need it anymore do something else with your time stop having sex <laughs> yeah stop having sex great like, advice what kind of advice is this in the yeah. u.s they'd be saying oh you poor thing well you know just you can do it don't worry even people in their 90s can do it you know she was saying you know it's just sex it's just sex why make a big deal of it maybe maybe because you know, if you're after 40 you've, you will have had children so you know yeah, job, that's job what done it's for anyway, that's what right? it's done yeah that is what it's for but i mean there is a curious kind of difference here I mean attitudes to, towards sex I mean you do encounter a lot of sort of puritanical attitudes and the party itself used to be very very puritanical about sex but in other ways it seems to be a subject that people are just very matter of fact about yeah surprisingly matter of fact mm. uh, but we, we could sit here and swap um, contradictory facts on this or, or you know we could right. talk about the amount of sex shops there are and yet the, like the lack of um, yeah. sex education right. in schools and you know, people are matter of fact but, but it almost because they're brushing you off you know, they don't really want to talk about it. And maybe one of the reasons there's so many sex shops and sex pos is, in fact, because the sex education is very bad, and that's very where bad. people actually yeah. get their sex education is in dodgy sex shops. Yeah. And, and, and if, as, as some people suggest, that they're getting a lot of it from, from pornography, such as Japanese porn, and if you ever watch any Japanese porn, then that's, that's worrying indeed. <laughs> okay, so now we've done sex and drugs. We're going to skip rock and roll and <laughs> go straight on to murder. <laughs> Serial killers and mass murderers, uh, a subject that is not, uh, there's not a lot of literature about it, either academic or journalistic. Uh, and you've done a fair bit of writing about it, uh, Robert. So, I mean, w we worked on a piece, well, you wrote it and we published it on, on, on Dunway about serial killers and you've, you've written for other publications on it. Um, it's, it is a curious feature of Chinese life. There do seem to be as many serial killers here as elsewhere, but it's just not something that's talked about. The Chinese media doesn't talk about it and it's very little reported on in English. Uh, why is that? Um, <laughs> because it's bad news. Simple as that. Hmm. So, uh, people, they're not aware of it in the slightest, are they? So, why, why, why alert them? The, the same reason they didn't report on SARS when it hit and everything. Okay, they, they, they have a paternalistic attitude. They, they yeah. feel like, we have to keep this from the masses because we don't want panic and all this kind of stuff. It's but then why, why is there so little written in English about it? Is it just because it doesn't matter to the, the wider world? Or I think it's, it's one of those, there's, I mean, there's so many stories that have probably gone over the heads of... of foreign writers or editors, um, because there's so much going on the whole time. Yeah. I mean, you, you need a, a thousand journalists every day writing about stuff to even come close to covering China. So it's just one of those stories that slipped through the cracks that I thought was interesting. So yeah. let's, let's talk about some of the more interesting serial killers that, that you've written about. I mean, who, w which of them would you say was you know, the one that really stands out as a... Uh, I guess the, the one... Uh, the gang we started out with, um, because... If, these were really a, a group of, of, of gangsters, but behaving like serial killers. And as, as they went through China, killing and, and torturing KTV girls and extorting them for their ATM pin numbers, they would end up recruiting some of these girls to become part of their trap. So, you know, if a couple invites you back to their house, you might be a little bit more uh, relaxed. Uh, so you often get serial killer couples in in America, but this, these were like a group of about five or six, um, motivated not by uh, psychopathy but m material gain. And when when was this? 
Uh, well, they were actually arrested, uh, or at least uh, prosecuted, um, around the time of publication, which I think was uh, 2012. Yeah, January yeah. 2012. But they, they've been knocking around serial killers uh, since uh, the very early days of reform. And I think you uh, actually dug one out um, from the 50s, which I hadn't found out about. But yeah, so it's one of those ones where, um, I mean, my interest is mainly how, how you know naked capitalism has has changed China, and it's introduced one of the things it's introduced is huge amounts of, of vice, and you know, greed, and this is just in a sense a lot of these people are manifesting greed in the most extreme way. And I, I guess I mean one of the things you look at in the article is why how this happens, and it seems that just like in perhaps in the United States, and when serial killers first became a phenomenon, a big part of it is that you have a lot of migrants who mm. people don't necessarily miss. Um, urbanization, don't go is, home. Yeah. urbanization, and you have uh, transport systems, rail systems start to open up so people can move quickly across borders and large landscapes, and you also have. Uh, provincial police forces who uh, aren't necessarily co- cooperating um, might even be quite rivalrous. And we all mm. know how uh, the US has suffers from um, federal bodies not cooperating with each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. So but the same thing exists here. I would assume, I don't know, maybe now, but uh, in the past decade, decades for sure, is that the police, the local police were not uh, connected uh, to cooperate or collaborate by a computer and by keeping, you know, uh, mm. federal or, or, or unified records at some top level. And so, you know, something like this could go unreported. The, the, it would take a long time to put two and two together exactly. to figure out it was the same person. You know. And catching a serial killer nowadays requires a great deal of forensic effort. Yeah. And that costs a lot of money. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not sure about the budgets of police forces from, from province to province. but You don't seem to have much uh, discussion in China or, or, or the, the idea of the, the sort of classic American serial killer who, who's some kind of pervert with some kind of psychological trauma or problem where they the sort of you know Hannibal the cannibal yeah. type of thing um, mother uh, issues yeah that doesn't yeah. seem to sort of Freudian the Freudian serial killer that doesn't seem to be such a there are a few um, sex sex killers most of the ones that I came across seem to be gay sex killers uh, there was a recent, well, not recent, a couple of years ago, the, the Yunnan cannibal, if you remember him. Um, and both of the incidences of, of the serial killers who operated in internet cafes, they were picking up young boys. And again, again, I, I don't think anyone uh, in, in rural police forces is on, on the lookout for, you know, gay, gay, sex, gay sex predators. Right. It's you just also not on the radar. You have this 24-7 news cycle here with, with, with total, totally... Uh, Commercial like media with only the only the headline and the bottom line in in sight, uh, because the, the, you know things like Ted Bundy and right. the stories that get covered uh, in in America and in the West are I think largely dependent upon this because we not only re- fixate on them and report them we glamorize them and actually make them in they become movies or and TV and, series or TV series yeah, yeah that's why they call them serial there's, killers. There's, there's right? some glamorizing, but there's also a huge amount of analysis going on, isn't there? Yes. So you ha- you'll have a you know uh, somebody, it'll, there'll be like an eight page spread, yeah, and it'll profile the victims. Right. Whereas here, something happens, uh, they get caught, then they vanish from the news from the headlines, right. and then they get um, executed. And that's that's a story. There might be one uh, one or two stories in the Western press, and we all move on. Yeah, I, but I think that's also an epic phenomenon of the paternal me- media right. that says we we shouldn't you know glorify or publicize these things. Will be bad for society. They you might know. have a point about some they of have that, a point. but I mean, there's, there's also you know, it's a flip side, of course, which right. is that you know People great, don't know great, great, yeah. There's someone at large who could. And it's the same thing that happens, like just slightly off topic. Whenever there's a Xinjiang-style attack, um, they, they try to sort of uh, keep it keep it on a down low, partly because of of, of a fear of exacerbating tensions, yeah. which is completely understandable. Yeah. But you don't get you don't really get a lot of like uh, you know, soul searching. Right. Okay, let's move on. We've done now, you know, sex, drugs, and murder. <laughs> Let, let's leave the topic of sin and vice for a little excursion into politics. And uh, oh, another piece you've done. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, you're leaving. You're out again. This was fun to now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, wait, wait. There's, there's sex, sin, and vice in politics, mm, as I recall, that's in true. Chinese culture. That's true. All right, I'll that's stick true. around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But we're not going to be talking about Gukai Lai, uh, <laughs> uh, the 
murderess wife of Borsi Lai, but we are going to be talking about something connected to Borsi Lai, which is you did an interview with uh, one of the founders of the Utopia website and bookstore. And uh, it happened uh, coincidentally uh, just around the time that uh, Borsi Lai was going down. And uh, so Utopia is a, a well-known, perhaps minority one could say, but... Um, is or was? Does it still exist? They're back in a sort of okay. neutered form, uh, not making much of a noise about themselves. But one of a group of lefty, uh, of you know, sort of leftists who were very supportive of of Borsilai. Mm. Uh, they occasionally pop up slapping somebody on film, don't they? Yes, These guys. It's, yeah. yeah, it's quite. So tell us about Fan Jingang, the the co-founder of Utopia Books, left Maoist bookstore, and and born website. in 1976, right? So born the same year the Mao died. So never experienced any of the things that he, he talks about or, or rhapsodizes about and, and believes them to be uh, utopian societies. And I think that kind of sums up everything you need to know about him in terms of whether he's to be taken uh, credibly. Because it's very easy to look back and, and, and sort of look at the past and, and say, well, it must have been better then because things are shit now. But I don't think any, any of us would swap the 1970s for the 2010s. Well, it's not surprising he was born when Mao died because if he had lived through any of that, he wouldn't have those <laughs> illusions. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of people who, you know, plenty of grandmothers who still do, right? Well, there's a nostalgia for that time, but no one is under any illusions and they're not Maoists. They're just mm. nostalgic for this classeless, moneyless, right. uh, sort of, you know, friendly... Yeah, communal. It's a communal society. I think it's more like nobody got rich, so we yeah. were all in this we're shit together. Mission, yeah. So I think that's what they're missing. Right. Whereas now, um, you know, you have the poor die or going to die, and these rich and and they don't they don't half rub it in to, yeah. to the poor to the poor boys people who aren't. So well, that's, which is why I have a, a certain sympathy for people like Fan Jingang. I mean, I, I do sometimes you know look around Beijing and China. And yeah, I, I feel well, you know. This is what happened. <laughs> the old, the previous Chinese dream. Yeah, you know. It's hard to know if, if Fan is really aware of of all the facts and chooses to f- believe that his particular point of view outweighs them, or if he's just a, a victim of selective education. Because whenever I try to steer him onto the subject, for example, we talked about Borshalai, and and he was talking about his his social policies. Um, but when I brought up uh, about the uh, the amount of of debt. He, he might have racked up in Chongqing with his um, so-called socialist policies. He, he didn't really want to know about that. He didn't seem to be aware of it. He changed the subject very quickly. So there's, there's, there's a sort of, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing they did with Mao. They're elevating somebody to a position of, of godlike immunity in their decisions. But everything they do, because it's ideologically pure, must be, you know, acceptable and good. Even if and for economically the good. it's... Yeah, but, but it doesn't matter if, they, if, 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 if people died... Or if millions died, because well, this, this is why the party is is embarrassed about such people, uh, you know. Partly, but they they're also uh, embarrassed about them. I think because um, they don't have much of an ideological uh, weapon to fight back with. Uh, yes, that's right. It it sort of pr- points out this uh, <laughs> this embarrassing fact that it's it's sort of like uh, in the the uh, culture T-shirt, the the Wenhua Shan craze during the. During after the student movement in 1989, when students would wear, ironically, they they put on these Le Feng T-shirts and wear them all day long. <laughs> sort of was poking this in the eye of the party, saying, right. "Well, this is what you want us to do, isn't yeah. it?" And yeah, I, I they really the, didn't want that. <laughs> well, I wondered the same thing um, during the, the the Japanese marches. Um, was it 2012? Yeah, when they were all like going on the street and they were they were carrying posters of whom. Chairman Mao. Chairman exactly. Mao, right. yeah, which was very Not, embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that an embarrassment to them, or were they handing those out? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so lefties, we're done. Uh, <laughs> before we get back to Vice, another theme that you've written about um, is strange uh, places uh, in Chinese cities where there are no people. And there are two stories I'm thinking of. One was Wastelands of Beijing, which was about... Um, these abandoned, huge abandoned projects. Um, and the other one was uh, those uh, fake European towns, some of which are uh, you know, ghost towns, real estate developments that are built to look like Venice or you know, a German mm. village. Right. And some of them do have people, but many of them seem to be empty. Um, let's start with the wastelands of Beijing piece. Um, 
you looked at a few different places. One of them was that huge, uh, unfinished, fake Disneyland on the uh, Badaleng or the Tibet Expressway uh, north of Beijing. Um, there was the Beijing Amusement Park. Mm. Which is being redeveloped, I, I, I think, right. uh, into an amusement park. So, so I mean, what drew you to uh, write about these places? I, I'm interested in, in, in old abandoned places that always have been since I was a child. And, and you know, it's, it's a kind of um, haunted house-style fascination with what was once um, thriving with human activity and now being reclaimed by nature. There's, there's a kind of haunted beauty about them. But then again, it was also uh, one of those things of um, the question you always find yourself asking in China was, why is this happening? There must be a reason. People often say, you know, uh, it's, it's the way it is. But uh, I'm of the belief that it's not just the way it is. It, it's, that reason, it's that way for a reason. Normally something to do with money yeah. or some sort of failed power play. Yeah. So when I dug around into, into the, the, ones, the Wonderland uh, up in Changping and the nearby place. That's the fake Disneyland. The fake Disneyland, yeah. which is alas now being demolished. Being demolished, yeah. And there's one nearby, which was uh, like supposed to be some sort of gigantic classical Greek-style gambling resort. And these are all linked to this guy I hadn't heard of before called Chen Shitong. So that, that youngster. That, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I was I was very young back then. Did you just say youngster? Yeah, I know. I, I was very young back then. This was, this was, I was, I've been in China two years, and I was I was learning. You know, it's, so I went back into into the nineties, and and then discovered like Beijing's Mayor. urban development. Yeah, the mayor, mayor and, and who was taken down yeah. for corruption. Yeah, and um, you know, an early precursor of, of Bo Shilai. I mean, his his, yes, his deputy mayor mm-hmm. shot himself or was found with a bullet hole in his head on the outskirts of Beijing. On the Great Wall, apocryphally. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's all sort of, that that just got me interested. That just got the juices flowing. Um, By the way, your your article has had some effect. Uh, I I was with some students the other day, and they actually asked me. They said that we were on line one, and they said, is there an abandoned amusement park somewhere? I saw that online. Those photos were amazing. I just want to see it. So your article has actually has some legs. A lot of people are also fascinated by this, there's also a Twitter site called I think it's just called Abandoned Places. Or something. Uh, yeah, I followed that? them. Yeah, you it's great. Those? It's great. Yeah. yeah, some of those are amazing. They're fantastic. Yeah, great, right? But yeah. also in China, it's interesting because I wonder if there aren't more of these kinds of half-finished, abandoned, grandiose uh, projects in China for various reasons. There, there, I can I can think of many in my time here, and there's one right now over near Dongjiman, near the Dongjiman subway, which oh, is y- y- right that that. Yeah, there's actually, there's, a, there's an article on, in the Economic Observer ex- that explains really? that. That explains yeah. that. About yeah. a year ago, yeah. 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 But it's not the only one. I, yeah. I, it's, I, all over Beijing, there are you know, buildings that have been there for 10 years that never got completed. Uh-huh. Even at, uh, at, at uh, Shidan, near Shidan, there was a building that, that is just now being completed, but sat there empty for almost five, six, seven, eight years. Is you know We're not economists here, but I wonder if you have any you know thoughts on that. Is there something about China that... Causes these deals to fall through and not. Do you find these places in every city. Um, in China, in, in, no, in China and, and in the world, oh, okay. and and there's normally it's to do with some sort of uh, legal dispute over over the land or the developers' money ran out. And what you get in China, if it's an extra sort of little bit of, you know, China icing <laughs> on the cake, is there's often some sort of political blood being spilled, and you know it's all to do with someone who's. You know, trying to build some grandiose project and then got you know done for corruption and then their legacy was immediately in disgrace. Right, yeah. and then it's stuck in some kind of limbo where it, you, yeah. people can't take it over for some reason. But there's there's a whole bunch of paperwork that no one can shift. But you add into that the Chinese penchant for kitsch, right? Then you have yeah. gold. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Then you have photographic gold. Right, right. I mean, I mean, and a brilliant example of that you must have seen a couple of weeks ago. That photograph of a Marilyn Monroe statue. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, is that what what kind of uh, dismays me is that. No one can give an explanation for, the, for that. I mean, there must be a reason yeah. why it went up, it went, yeah. this Marilyn Monroe statue in Guiyang, right? and then it came down. It's lying face down lying in face a stone. down with the dress yeah. still blowing <laughs> up. So, I mean, what, what's going on there? I, I want to know. I want to know. know. Yeah. You know, I, the reason why it was taken down, I think, may Adam Minter, the, the 
who's been oh, right. on the show. Oh, right, he'd be a good person to ask uh, Well, I mean, it became useless at some point, and that we don't know. But why it, it, it was then... It became useless. Previously, it was so useful. You could... Well, okay, but you know, it was advertising an attraction of some kind. Oh, of, I see. You know, whoever put it up suddenly you know, wasn't around. And then you've got this right. big chunk of steel. And the reason why it was oh, face great down... Scrap. Right. Yeah, scrap, right. recycling. Yeah. That's why it was uh, face down on a truck. <laughs> there you go there's, there's a good explanation yeah. right now okay so uh, let's go back to vice and let's uh, mm. let's yes. talk about the biggest vice of them all which is journalism ah. <laughs> so um, when we started thinking about the show we were also thinking possibly of getting James Palmer on the show who a little like you is somebody who's arrived here not as a traditional foreign correspondent and has made a career as a journalist by putting together bits and pieces of different types of journalism, including working for state media in China, including writing for respectable old school, you know, traditional media publications, including writing for new media publications, Eon Magazine, mm. Vice, you know, online only, only publications. And is this the future of foreign correspondence? Uh, well, it, it might have to be if they stop giving people visas. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is there, but I, I got the impression that uh, it's very hard for a, a new, let's say, a new media company to get accreditation now as a as a uh, journalistic institution in China. Not just a let new alone, media, an old media, and company an old, well, too, specifically Times, a couple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I don't think the Times would have a problem with renewing its visas, but it might be difficult for. Well, you know all these places. I don't think they've. I don't think they've been able to get new people in. Right, yeah. that's the thing. The old people um, are stuck and can renew, but yeah, and they're yeah. trapped here, and, yeah. the, and the editors don't want them to come home. Yeah. Um, so, so there you have a problem. You know, I hate to do this, but can I just bash mainstream media? Uh, yeah, yeah, know, bash journalism a little do bit. It. Why not? I mean, what what sticks out, you know, for me, Robert's articles, and also, by the way, our friend Chris Beam, who's been on this podcast before, and writes. A lot of these stories are so fascinating, but they, they need to be written up in an, and not in the usual sort of very vetted, dry, journalistic mm. style. Uh, I've seen so many really good journalists get on a story like this, a similar kind of story, and they, 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 they spend days doing in-depth interviews, and, and they, they get all the background information on it. And the resulting article is always lame and disappointing. And it always starts out with, you know, uh, you know, Gu, Gu Zhong is a 22-year-old, something or other. He comes to school every day, blah, 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 blah. He's typical of the number of Chinese yeah. these days who are blah, blah, blah. Burgeoning middle class. Yeah, and then there's a few things and a yeah. few paragraphs. And all the interesting stuff is just gone, mm. you know. But so, And then the other side of that is Vice Media, which is like... We took ketamine with Hezbollah <laughs> fighters, and this is the video, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. is there a middle ground? There would, uh, you mentioned James. Um, you know, he's fortunate enough to have a, a magazine which gives him the, the freedom to to write four thousand words on a subject, which you know would be hard for someone outside of China to quite understand. Mm. Uh, for example, the, the one about the eighties generation one. Mm. Fantastic piece. Mm. Um, but it, I can't imagine that being on, in many other publications. So, yeah, it, yeah, it, well, it's a problem. Even, that's a, sort of thing you couldn't even cover in a usual uh, New York Times or Washington Post, you know. Uh, you have you know, just like six paragraphs. I mean, each, each, each paragraph is its own, each sentence is its own paragraph. How can you cover anything with that? How can mm. you even write anything interesting with that? As I mean, a, well, it's a pervading sense, and, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, that, you know, an article has to be X length. Yeah. Uh, 2,000 words, and then people just like, <laughs> like lose interest. But I, I think that, you know, with... You know, e-readers and you know apps like Pocket, read it later, Insta paper. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge market for sitting in taxis reading Absolutely. huge long pieces. Absolutely. And on train journeys and, and all right. that kind of stuff. So maybe I think maybe editors are, are not willing to take the risks of doing long stuff. Right. There's there's also there's people like Ian Johnson who do both. Mm. He, he's given the freedom to write he because he writes for all the New York publication new york times new york review of books and the new yorker right mm. and he's given the freedom to breathe and write an eight thousand uh, word uh, article but at the same time he can do the the, the strict the the traditional journalistic thing of the short article where you have a few pull quotes and that's it but i just more and more whenever i see any story even by a journalist i respect uh, that's in one of those traditional uh, venues if, you know, almost the more interesting the, the, the topic is, the more I want to read about it somewhere else and not there. A lot, of it, the a, lot, a lot of it's to do with a phone yeah. editor. 
yeah. adapting it for what they believe is a domestic audience. Yeah, yeah. In fairness to those journalists, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I, I've had it happen to me when something's come back and it's, it's just... Um, it's been sort of slightly castrated, or they've taken out what I thought was the interesting part. Yeah. And I think mean, that's only every journalist will say they took out the you know the, yeah. the bit I like. like the but, best part, but, yeah. But, yeah. It, it's hard um, writing um, about China for a foreign audience, isn't it? Though because you have to do so much boilerplate stuff. You, yeah. You know, you have to set the scene. You, got, you mentioned yeah. Borshilai, and then you got to do uh, uh, you know the disgraced former Pongqing yeah. Party secretary, you know, yeah. whose downfall led to you know one of the biggest crises in the party in, in, since the Tiananmen Square, and all blah 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 blah. blah, 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 blah precisely you know. because Chinese stories are interesting. Mm. It's worth doing that, and that's why I like to see a story that breathes and can do that and can give the reader the background. That's why almost the other anything else is worthless to, to tell the truth. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, in terms of length, I also think there is uh, in the American media kind of uh, to an extent an obsession with long stories. Whereas British journalism, I mean, the Fleet Street tradition is you know you got five hundred words might fucking tell the whole story shut up you know that's because they want to get out of the pub by, by midnight <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough but I mean sometimes you don't want to read yeah. 2,000 words you just want to say what happened who died you know how many people were that's, involved that's like what, you, what I think a correspondence job is like the, the daily an actual right? a daily yeah, and, and, and those guys have it hard because it's hard for them to get out of Jungle Mind and then go down to the provinces for, for, for I mean I mean, for example, I was just thinking, if you really wanted to do a fantastic story about the, the, the crackdown on corruption, you'd have to send about 10, 10 correspondents into the into provinces for two weeks and talk about, like, work all their contacts and find out what's actually going on, how much right. infighting yeah. is going on, how much of this is being pushed back from the, from the uh, provinces towards the centre. I mean, how much of this is just a purge and how much of this is sincere? That's a huge piece, sprawling piece, and it takes huge amounts of resources and, and contacts. And no one seems to have that. No one seems to be willing to do that. I think they could they're do cutting, it. They could do it. But bureau, yeah. bureau, uh, bureau well, I mean, the, the economics, I mean, in, in some ways, yeah. my original question about this topic, what is right. the future for correspondence? Could do that. I mean, some of it is just there's no money. So more and more people are going to have careers like yours, Robert, where you, you write for a variety of publications and you're kind of on your own. There's um, going to have to be, like, I, I think the, the sort of the model, which is like the Guardian and the, the Times have, which is loss making but backed by huge family fortunes. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's actually a good model. <laughs> Because it means they they can afford to say we're not going to kowtow to like our beliefs because we want to get our terminals in the cities on the mainland. So that's that's yeah. what you need. You need yeah. rich philanthropists. Owning you do. Media you need, you need billionaire, That's the business model for the billionaire media. philanthropists. So we need to be hands off and uh, not Rupert Murdoch like. Ah, uh, me. Not not un- <clears throat> completely impossible to end it on a slightly like. <laughs> Optimistic note. Yeah, <laughs> it's jo- not uh, so our conclusion is Eon is, Eon is, is owned by a, uh, an Australian magnet. Ah, okay. So, so yeah, we just need more rich people who like good media. That's right. The answer. Exactly. Rich people will save the world. We need, you know. <laughs> but rich Never people. Mind Thomas Piketty. We need frankly, more rich people. Rich people do like to have prestigious publications. So you know, I think that's not going to change. Yeah. So let's try not to be too. Right, they, <laughs> too grim about this. Think of it as playing Monopoly. Yeah, and now I right. want a newspaper. You know, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like Chen. Yeah. <laughs> let's not. No, let's not have. Chen we don't want him. Only. Don't no, want I him want him to be anywhere. very specific. <laughs> we want him actually engaged in an actual act of philanthropy. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on to the final section of the Green show. Green suits for all homeless people. <laughs> Our recommendations, and I'll go mm. first. Mine is. Uh, the Financial Times, full disclosure, my company is now owned by them, <laughs> uh, summer reading selection, uh, which they do every summer. And it includes uh, several China books, including two by previous Seneca guests, Adam Munter, Age of Ambition, and Evan, uh, sorry, Evan Osnos's Age, Age of, of Ambition, yeah. and Adam Munter's uh, um, Junkyard Planet. Uh, and it's a long reading list with a, a, a good uh, variety of stuff to read if you are one of those people lucky enough to actually get a summer vacation. Robert, does the FT not give you? I, I'm just a naturally yeah. oh, hard right. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I've got two one. Um, one is is, is light hearted because I think we need that. Uh, it's a piece on Beijing cream. Full disclosure, I, I'm a co-founder of a website. Uh, it's about the, uh, the film called Empires of a Deep, which was supposedly China's most expensive film that was uh, made to beat Avatar and put China on, on the on the world map as a cinematic force to be reckoned with. Blah blah blah. But it's it's never come out. Um, but it was filmed. And uh, I, I met a guy who was who was on the, was on the production for three months as an extra, and I persuaded him to to write his diaries from the time, oh. and and they're very very funny. 
Um, so if you want to see all, all the sort of stories of incompetence come to life, <laughs> read, read that. And the second one is a little bit more serious, and I, I just finished it a couple of years ago, and I'm still, it's still in my head. It's a book by a friend of mine called Susan Barker. It's called The Incarnations, and it's a historical <clears> thriller <throat> about China. Beijing taxi driver who discovers he may have been reincarnated six times throughout Chinese history, uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. Wow. So I'd recommend that absolutely wholeheartedly. I, I finished it in two days. Wow. I think I just had that cab driver on, on the road over. <laughs> okay, I'm going to recommend somebody who's been around a while. I just think that she doesn't get enough play or enough enough press. I think she's very good. It's Dambisa Moyo, the, uh, ger- the uh, economist born in Zambia. Uh, and full disclosure, full disclosure, she's I'm her secret lover. Uh, <laughs> you guys all had full disclosure. I wanted to have something interesting here. Bring you back. I don't have anything. Sex. No, no. <laughs> Two things. One is a book called Winner Take All: China's Race for Resources and What It Means for the World. It's a very good book. About sort of on to be put next to Damien Ma's book. You know, a little bit the same thing. And she also has a, a very good TED talk, which is. She is uh, saying kind of the same things that Eric Eric X Lee says, but without the the nationalistic smarminess that that Eric X Lee and Eric X Lee has TED Talk too on the same topic. What does the X stand for? Uh, that I, I was, his, I don't know. His his Chinese it, name is Lee Shermore, so right. it's, uh, it should be Eric S M Lee. S M yeah. Lee. S M Lee. Because <laughs> reading his columns is kind of like S M. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Anyway, but she has a, a good. TED Talk, and just by the way, as if if you are a someone who is in academia or you 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 use TED Talks or you, or you would like to use them for your classes, TED Talks has a really great feature, which is that you can download the the TED Talks free an MP4 file, and you can also choose to have subtitles in whatever language you want. So I have downloaded a lot of these things with Mandarin subtitles, which then I can then show to a Chinese audience or my or for that matter. I sometimes cheat and use these things to get keywords and phrases that I can use <laughs> when I go on state media and have to sound like I'm halfway intelligent. <laughs> I can just copy what's in the subtitle, and this is bound to be very good. So I recommend TED Talks, but but check out her TED Talks. She's a very smart person, and I think says a lot of good things about China. And she's doing it from the not from the uh, sort of traditional Western white male, uh, you know, uh, and and neither is she doing it from the Chinese nationalistic sort of fifty cent side either she's interesting i'd also recommend her book dead aid about how uh you know that's the, her first book right yeah, i think yeah. that was the yeah her first book and about how aid is really screwing up africa yeah. instead of helping it yeah uh, so she's uh of the opinion that that the chinese approach is she's, better than the she's than nuanced the... she makes a very good case that the that there's some, some very good things that we need to learn from the chinese system mm. and that Whatever we think, the rest of the world is is learning from it, or is being you know, it's it's the same sort of Beijing consensus versus Washington consensus. But I think it's also, argument. I mean, from the African point of view, it's that you know, uh, she she believes it's better to do business with Africa than to see it as a you know a, a beggar that needs handouts, right. and and right. that's the Chinese approach. Right. right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Robert, <laughs> David. Yes. Uh, thank you for joining us. Great to wallow uh, in sin and vice. Sin and vice. Uh, yeah, this uh, was our first sin and vice <laughs> podcast, and hopefully it won't be the last. Seneca and vice. Seneca vice. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all next week on the Seneca podcast.